Good morning. Welcome to Matters of the Heart, this new equipping series we're starting this morning and we'll take just the next 13 weeks uh, to consider and develop from Scripture what we'll just call a theology of, of the heart, of the inner person, of the soul. And so, yeah, let's begin our time by going to the Lord in prayer. Let's just pray with you. Well, Father, it is our privilege to be called by your name. It is our joy to gather together in the name of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our joy to consider that we are created by you in your image, created with dignity to display your glory, to delight in your presence, to grow in love for you and one another. And so we pray that you would open our hearts to receive from your word this morning, that you would conform us to the image of your son, that you would cause us to walk in the power of your spirit, that you would bear through us fruits in keeping with repentance, that you would bear in us fruits that build your church and that honor your name. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the heart or the inner person, the soul. That's what we're going to be thinking about in these weeks ahead. It's one of the massive issues of Scripture, that between the Old and New Testaments, there's approximately 850 direct references to the heart, both to God's heart and to human hearts. There's approximately 300 direct references to the soul around 150 direct references to the mind. Think about that. Over 1,300 explicit direct references to the heart and soul and mind. The number of indirect or implicit references are innumerable. I think it'd be quite a task to take that up as a project, to go through the Bible and circle every direct or indirect reference to the inner person, or to the soul, or to the heart. And so the scripture speaks of it constantly, and I think we have to ask ourselves, why? Why does God talk about this so much, so often, so deeply? And I think one of the simple answers to that is because it matters to God. Like your soul, your heart, your inner person matters to God. A lot. Joel 2, 13, where he says to the prophet, And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. He's not saying it's wrong to tear your clothes. It's wrong to partake in some external expression of devotion to God. But what Joel's getting at is, but realize that's not what he's really after. What he's really after is your heart. So he says, so rend your heart, a broken heart, a humbled heart, a dependent heart, a heart brought to him through some of those external expressions. And here's what he says next, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting from evil. 
Just those words, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, what do those words remind you of? When else did God say that about himself? To Moses, right? On Sinai, when Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, I'll cause my goodness to pass before you. And then he passed before him and he announced his name. And that's part of the name that he proclaimed. And what's fascinating is here's God saying, and so in relation to that name, to who he is, rend your hearts, not your garments. That that's what he's after. For he's compassionate. It matters enough to God that he would promise through the new covenant, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his son, through the Holy Spirit, to give us new hearts. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, where he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. For all your uncleanness from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here's Ezekiel prophesying from beside a river in exile with Israel and Judah exiled, kicked out of the land. Why? Because of their disobedience, their idolatry, their rebellion. Well, God took them at Sinai, made them his own, gave himself to them, gave them the law, the terms of this covenant he entered into with them. And after all these centuries, what did everybody have to realize? What did the law do for them? It just showed and revealed their failure. It just showed and revealed that the problem was not external. The problem was internal. And no matter how many exiles and return to the land, exile, return to the land, there was no way a fallen people were going to keep his law. And so the good news of that promise is God's saying through Ezekiel, so I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to cause you to love me and to love one another. That that's what it's going to take. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, what they don't realize quite yet is part of that getting me a new heart is, and I'm going to send my son into the world to take on human flesh, and he's going to die for all your transgressions against the law. He's going to actually keep my law perfectly in your place so that when he goes to the cross to die, he actually satisfies God's judgment, satisfies his justice, satisfies his law, satisfies his wrath in our place. So that as he's raised and justified before God as a righteous, the righteous one, all who put their faith in him get new hearts. All who he gives to a new heart are going to have faith in him and trust in him. And that's why the new covenant says, yeah, you're new creations. 2 Corinthians 6, for anyone who's in Christ, you're a new creation. And of course, 
when your eyes were open, when you look back at the time when the Lord saved you, when you went from death to life, how many of you got a brand new body with that? Anybody? No, that didn't change, right? You wake up the next day, you look in the mirror, and it's either just as encouraging or just as discouraging as it was the day before. But something radically changed. And here he's explaining it. Yeah, you got a new heart. You became a whole new creation. Now, as we'll talk about later, there is promises for a new body. But that's coming later. And so why does he talk about it so much? Well, there's one reason why. It, it, it's, it matters to him. And therefore, it should matter to us. But here's a second reason. It also matters to human life. The condition of your heart, your soul, your inner being affects everything. And drastically. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. You just think about that image that Solomon's giving. Keep watch of your heart. Guard your heart. Because from it flow the springs of life. So Solomon's giving us this image almost of this community, this village that they would have very much understood a thousand years B.C. with this well of water in the middle. And in that community, in that village, how much depends on the condition of that water? How much? Everything. Everything. They water livestock out of that well. They drink out of that well. They water crops out of that well. Well, what if that well gets contaminated? What if it becomes diseased or, yeah, someone puts about a thousand gallons of cyanide in it? What's that going to affect? I mean, everything. And what we're often tempted to do in life is, okay, the well is contaminated, but what if I just go around to every spigot in the whole community and just put a filter on it? What if I just try to counteract the water by putting minerals and vitamins in it? Well, you realize over time that doesn't make a big difference. And that's often how we go about change in life. You know what? I'll just go downstream from the problem and filter everything. I'll just try to clean up the outside. I'll try to make it look better. And yet Solomon's saying, no, it's the heart. It's the spring. And that's why it's important that when Elijah, you know, his first miracle, who knows Elisha's first miracle that he works after he comes back from the Jordan, Elijah goes into glory. Elisha comes back. He goes to Jericho. What's the first miracle he's going to work? Remember? It's a well of water. Remember, God had cursed Jericho. And so part of how that curse got expressed is the water was contaminated. And so the people came to him and said, hey, the situation here in Jericho is pretty good, but the water's bad. So remember, he's going to throw a stick in it. And he's going to declare by the word of the Lord that those waters are clean. And essentially, that's the first miracle he's going to do. It's like to make a really profound point that, yeah, the curse, the real problem for the nation isn't external. It's internal. And what the word of the Lord is aiming to do is fix that, transform that. 
And so today, what we're going to talk about is the creation of the heart. And so we're going to do 13 weeks on just a theology of the heart and those implications for the Christian life and for life in the church. So you'll hopefully have a handout in front of you, a booklet even. So we actually have all the outlines for all 13 weeks already ready. So everybody got a booklet? Look carefully at it. Write your name on it. It's the only one you're going to get. So we're not going to print 150 of these every week. So we printed those so that you just have it with you, keep it in your Bible, keep it where you want. But if you lose it, or if your dog eats it, that's okay. You can go online, find it. We'll have all the outlines there, and you can print more. But what we're trying to avoid is having to replace the same booklet. So just encourage you, keep, keep a hold of it, keep watch of it, bring it back. If you lose it, it's okay. Just you can go online. We'll have them there, and you can print off another copy. So creation of the heart. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. Seems right to begin in the beginning. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Fred Jordan, would you read those two verses real loud for us? So here God resolves to create a being who would image him, reflect him, display him into a physical world, a physical representative over the rest of the creation who would be a living spirit, but contained in a physical body. And it's not until Genesis 2, if you want to flick over to Genesis 2, that we're going to learn how the Lord accomplished that work of creation. Look at Genesis 2. Verse 7. Fred, read that one for us. So here the Lord forms Adam's body from the dirt. He, he molds him together like a big piece of clay. But then something, that's going to be something unique in his creation of mankind. He doesn't take all the other animals and mold them out of the dirt. But Adam, he's going to take and actually mold him from the dirt, from the dust. And then notice he's going to animate his body with a soul by breathing into him the breath of life, which is also unique to Adam, unique to Eve, unique to human beings. But here he doesn't just sort of make him a clay sculpture, but breathes spirit into him, life into him. And this is what animates him. This is what makes him alive. And so created, that point A there, with a heart. That God created Adam's body, formed it from the dirt, but then he put his spiritual life, a spiritual life, a soul, a heart into his body. And so what Scripture does is it identifies that inner part, that spiritual part, with lots of different words. Lots of different names, all speaking to the inner person. 
in recognizing a number of aspects of that inner person. 2 Corinthians 4.16, where Paul calls it the inner self, which is one of the broadest phrases the Scripture gives us for your inner person. The inner person, the inner self, your spiritual being. And there's an author named Troxel that wrote a great book. I'm going to give out some copies in later weeks. But the title of the book is With All Your Heart. And so he says that the heart is the Bible's way of saying the totality and unity of our inner nature. The totality and unity of our inner nature. The Bible just calls it your heart. And so what we'll do now is you'll have it in your notes is we'll just walk through some of the words that Scripture uses to identify and describe and point to that inner being your inner self. Because in in sort of studying some of the vocabulary that God chooses, we learn a lot about who we are, what we're made of. So beginning with heart, Genesis 8, 21. Owen Bader, read that for us. I think you have it in front of you, right? Genesis 8, 21. So the Lord said in his heart, Leb, it's the Hebrew word, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart, Leb, is evil from his youth. So notice how God uses the same Hebrew word to capture his own heart, to name it, and Adam's heart. Because the word heart is a way of referring to the totality of our being. That's why some of you may have Bibles that, that actually translate that the Lord said to himself. Didn't just say to his heart, but said to himself. Because that's basically saying the same thing. To say to your heart is the same as saying to say to yourself. The totality of your inner being. And so part of being made in the image of God is having a heart. An inner self that can reason. That can relate. That can love and hate and exercise will. This is one way that we as human beings are distinctive. Notice what he observes. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He'll never say that about animals. You notice that? Because they're they're not the same. Another phrase is the phrase inner self. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we don't lose heart. There's the heart word. Though our outer self, exo, Esso is wasting away. Two different words in the Greek. Our esso, exo, or exo, esso, our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self, esothane, one word, is being renewed day by day. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day by the grace of God. And so those tend to be the two sort of aspects of who we are that are most basic to the language of Scripture, outer self, inner self. And notice how losing heart is related to the inner self. One other word Scripture uses is the word being. Psalm 108.1, my heart, Leb, there's that word again, is steadfast, O God. 
I will sing and make melody with all my being, kabod. Notice how those are parallel? Leb, kabod. I, my heart is steadfast. I'll make melody with all my being. So that kind of parallelism is a great hint that God is seeing those words as describing the same basic person, the inner person, heart, being. And that Hebrew word, actually, kabod, can be translated splendor, or even more literally, weight. In other words, my heart is steadfast, O God, I will sing and make melody with all my weight, with the weight of the glory of my inner being. That that's what I'm going to do. And so the psalmist really is saying, I will sing and make melody with all the weight of my glory. What a great idea to have in mind this morning as we gather as a church and sing. To sing and make melody with all the weight of your inner being. With all the force of it. Or the word soul. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, labab, so derived again from the same noun, with all your soul, nefesh, which could also mean vitality, with all your might, mehod, which literally means vehemence. I wish we'd translated it that way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your vehemence. That sounds different, doesn't it? Like we should love God vehemently. That's how much he wants the inner person. That's how the Bible really is putting a spotlight on, well, here's what God is after. He wants your vehement love, your wholehearted love, your whole being love. Or the word mind, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds, phroneo, that's a, actually a verb. And so, who live according to the flesh, really setting their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, pneuma, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind, phronema, noun, on the flesh is death. But to set the mind, phronema, noun, on the spirit is life and peace, where he's identifying there's setting your mind, the verb, but then there's just your mind, the noun, that part of your inner being that sets upon things. You ever found that? You sit there and you just, your mind drifts and your thoughts will eventually set on something. Just in the quietness of a room, sit there in the chair, stare at a wall, and you can't not think. That's why that statement of, yeah, I did that, I wasn't thinking. Well, that's not ever true. We're always thinking. And we're either aware of it or we're not aware of it. But the mind will always be set on something. And that's why it's important what he says in Romans 8. It's either set on the flesh or it's set on the spirit. And the way you're going to know is usually what comes out of you is what's going to be the evidence of where the mind has been set, where, what ground it is rooted in. 
And we tend to associate the mind with the thinking aspect of our inner being, which I think is right. But then what we usually do is wrongly pit that against the emotional and effective aspects of our being. We'll say things like, follow your heart, or do what feels right. And usually we pit that over against careful thinking. And that's actually a false dichotomy. And we'll get into that in future weeks. It's why it's so important to think about when the Bible talks about the inner being, there, it is a unified and total nature that's inside. And so we may feel conflict with what our desires are saying and what our conscience is saying, with what we're feeling and what we sort of know to be true. But the feelings is often the most accurate sort of representation of what you really think is true. And so there's, there's always a harmony there. And part of sanctification is those things becoming more and more harmonious. How our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our affections, our will, how all that aligns and is conformed more and more to the image of God. Will is another word for the inner person. So that it depends not on human will. That's also a verb. So human willing depends not on human willing or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So it doesn't depend on your willing, but God's willing who has mercy. According to John 1, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, thelema, noun, but of God. Just that your salvation, your regeneration, you getting a new heart is not the product of your willing. It's the product of God's willing, which is the product of his mercy toward you. Praise God. And because it's the product not of your willing, but of God's willing, you can't unwill it. You can't will out of it because it doesn't depend on you but on God. So praise God that we have a will, but yet that will is at the mercy of God. And in Christ, when he chooses us, he submits our will to his will. And we spend the rest of our lives rejoicing in that. I don't think any of us are going to get to heaven and go, I wish God had left it to me. Because we'll realize I would have never chosen it. I would have never willed it. And if I'd wanted, I couldn't have willed it. Yeah, Joshua, there is, though, some willing that we're meant to do. This is Joshua 24, 15. He's getting at this same idea. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's Joshua expressing will based on what God has done for me, what he has done in redeeming me and bringing us out of Egypt. My will is to serve him. That's what I'm going to devote my will to. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
In other words, there is, again, the total being that we're offering, and that's usually offered through the body, through singing, through serving, through our whole lives, and that is a spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's that word again. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But that's really fascinating, you know, that it's okay to pray for the will of God, but if you really want to know the will of God, worship. You see the connection? Give yourself entirely to him. Don't be conformed to the world. Follow him, and you will come to understand the will of the Lord. Too many of us are seeking the will of the Lord without worship. We're seeking the will of the Lord without giving ourselves entirely to him, without devoting ourselves entirely to him, without sort of refusing to be conformed to the world. So in other words, the will of God isn't something he's just going to zap you with. It's something that he feeds you as you come to him continually. Spirit is another word scripture uses. Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit, the ruach. It's kind of a scary verse, right? Praise God for Christ, where it says all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. We just sort of look on the surface and go, you know, I think I'm okay. Well, the Lord weighs the spirit. He really weighs your weight, your spiritual weight. How many of you just love to get weighed in public? You know, you're at the doctor's office, it's time to weigh in again, and you're just hoping a whole crowd of people stands around. Just that as you walk up onto that scale, people with their phones, right? I think if that happened, we would all go, whoa, I'm not doing this. Well, how much more to be weighed by God in heaven? To walk into his presence and him to weigh your spirit. That's sobering. But it's why we're doing this this semester, for us to really step back and go, okay, Lord, I need your mercy more than I thought your help more than I thought, your compassion more than I thought. And I don't think I want to keep sort of just convincing myself of how I'm doing based on externals. Because you weigh the Spirit. Proverbs twenty twenty seven: the Spirit, Neshama, of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. There again, the Spirit is in that inner being, and it can search the innermost parts. You see how those are parallel again. That that Hebrew word, neshama, means puff. What a great way to think about ourselves. An embodied puff. A breath can be translated spirit. And both those words are in Job 32.8, where Job says, It is the spirit, ruach, in man the breath, neshama, of the Almighty that makes him understand. Again, that's what separates you from your dog or from the cows in your pasture. Is that it's, you have a spirit, a ruach, in you that is God's breath 
that makes you understand, makes you able to reason, to relate to him and others in a self-conscious kind of way. And this brings us back to Genesis 2-7, where we started in the creation of Adam. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed, nephah, into his nostrils the breath, neshama, of life, and man became a living creature, nephesh, a being, a breathing creature with personhood. And so again, that's where we need to see it's, it's that that really does separate us, that invisible spiritual part of us is an aspect of the image of God in us. Let's create man to, to image us. So a being with his breath, with his life that is embodied and therefore able to image him into the created world. Because animals, they have breath, right? They breathe. They're alive, but it's not the same thing that we have. When God withdraws reason from Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.32, what does he begin to act like? An animal, like a cow. He doesn't look like a cow, though his nails are getting long, his hair is getting long, but if anybody saw him, they would see him grazing like a cow and go, okay, something is off. He has the body, he's a man, but He's lost reason, so he looks like a cow. Well, that's a, this strong declaration about what separates us from the animals is that capacity to reason, that functioning of the inner person. And this is where evolutionary theory is so antithetical to Scripture in this way. We're not just highly evolved animals. How do you evolve, 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 and then become a human being? It's just so clear. Even when you look at human beings next to chimpanzees, there's something radically different. And unbelieving blind people can't see it because they just see just a progression of animals. But there's this chasm between the two that is by God's design that he breathed a kind of life into you that is his life. Gave you a kind of image that is his image. And so we are qualitatively different kinds of creatures when compared to the rest of creation. They have bodies, but they don't have an inner person. They don't have a heart. That's why if you're driving down the road and there's a dead squirrel in the road, you might go, oh, that's sad. Or you might go, oh, that's gross. But you're probably not going to stop and stop traffic, carefully take the body of that squirrel into a box and go have a funeral. Or if you did, people would be concerned, right? <laughs> that you were not understanding what that creature is. But what if you're driving and there's a human body in the road? Now you stop. Or if you don't, people are going to go, something's wrong with you. And, yeah, and so we, we should immediately see there's a difference. between, and, and we do realize there's a difference. The Lord decides to make a companion for Adam. Now we're back in Genesis 2. 
because it's not good for him to be alone, which means to have no one of his nature and substance. And what's interesting is you remember after God declares that it's not good for a man to be alone, he brings all these animals. Remember, and he marches them in front of Adam. And what does Adam do? He names them. And yet at the end, is that God just experimenting? Is that really for God to figure out, will these work? Or is this actually for Adam? For, you to, for Adam to see, yeah, none of these will do. None of these are your substance. None of these are share my image bearing with you. And so this isn't what it means for you to have a helper suitable. And so God's going to put Adam to sleep, take out a rib, and then do with that rib something similar to what he done with Adam, form a human being, form Eve. And we have to believe, follow the pattern, and then breathe life into her. Because the moment God brings Eve to Adam, he knows this ain't a giraffe. This is not one of those other animals. This is a whole different thing. And remember, he's just going to worship. He's going to praise God and go, at last, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. Now, animals have bones and flesh. So he's clearly using that poetically to say, no, this is a being like me. And not like all these other animals that just walked in front of me. She's unique. And then what's amazing is then God is going to give them the ability to procreate. For them to, to come together as one flesh in, 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 in the sanctity of marriage. And for God to bring about by his grace through their union conception. And then a little human being begin to grow inside her womb. And at some point, I think at conception... That being gets being. Whether it's God indirectly through Adam and Eve or God directly giving breath, life to that child. And that's how the Bible talks about children in the womb. Listen to some of this. You know, the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary which is part of why I think God normally gives life to a human being at conception. And it says, when Elizabeth, this is the mother of John the Baptist, has John the Baptist in her womb, heard the greeting of Mary in Luke 1.41, it says, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. Why, why, does that, why is that happening? Why does John the Baptist leap in her womb? Of course, the Spirit is, I mean, it's a foreshadowing of nobody's going to be more excited about the coming of Christ than John the Baptist. Nobody's going to be born of woman like John the, and understand like John the Baptist who Jesus is. Nobody else is going to get the privilege of announcing him. So here we get this foreshadowing, but everything about what that passage says says, okay, this is a being inside Elizabeth, someone with a soul, someone that the Spirit can move to rejoice just at the voice of the mother of Jesus Christ. David says in Psalm 51.5 that he was conceived in sin. Think about that. He, he the person, conceived in sin. In other words, at conception, he was a person. He was a being. The Apostle Paul says to the Lord, he set me apart before I was born, Galatians 1.15. 
So we can, we can read many verses like that, whether it's Psalm 139, where the Lord is not only forming and knitting us together physically, but the Lord also, Psalm 139.16, saw our unformed substance. He saw us, not just physical, not just substance, even the unformed parts. And so the Lord then uses the created, procreative functions of men and women to conceive children physically and then spiritually. They come with a spirit. That's part of the miracle, again, that the world doesn't appreciate. So when, when human beings are producing children, it's not like cows producing calves. Like God is involved in a different way and the kind of being that's being produced is distinctive. That's why we value life in the womb, because there's personhood. There's a being that's formed in the image of God there. Any questions, reflections, comments before we go to the next section? All right. Well, created with a physical body. So we're not just souls floating around in the universe, but God. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Yeah, it. It's, I think we're, it, we're, we're on shaky ground when we go that direction for a lot of different reasons. But there's, um, there's many who have attempted to s sort of use marriage, husband and wife, as sort of in some ways symbolic of Trinity. And now you bring a child into it and it just you keep iterating that. Um, and I try to discourage that some for, I mean, that'll be a different discussion um, but I think, because you just don't see God using man, woman, child as an offspring, as, as an image of the Trinity, or describing it that way. You're going to see things like, okay, marriage is actually a reflection of what? Not the Trinity, but what? Christ and the church. And so the images that he does give us to say that are parallel are that. Now, by analogy, you can go, there's aspects of being made in the image of God and relating to other that should reflect Trinity. And I think that's actually what God sees in Adam that's a problem, is who does Adam have of his substance in nature to think about? Just one person to think about of his nature and substance, who is it? Himself. And God's like, that's not good. That's not like me. Because God is eternally other-oriented. He's eternally self-giving. He's eternally loving. And so to make someone in his image, and again, it's not like he doesn't goes, oh, wow, I missed something. No, that's there for us, like to see that man in his alone state isn't good and not because he's lonely. That's not the word. Alone and lonely aren't the same. But rather, he has no one of his nature and substance to really think about, to be oriented to, to care for than himself, and that's not good. He's going to be self-oriented. 
And so I'm going to give him someone of his nature and substance to orient himself toward. That's the help he needs. So there's a way in which that reflects God um, in a very specific kind of way. And there might be, again, by analogy, things that happen in threes. You'll hear illustrations like the Trinity, it's like an egg, or the Trinity, it's like... And, and again, all of it sort of gets at it. So it's not that we want to look at that and go, okay, it's just wrong. We just want to look at it and go, it's, just, it's limited. It's just a very small, tiny sort of parallel or analogy to who God is as the triune God. Um, and so that was still a longer answer, but um, yeah, good question. Though. Anything else? Other questions? Lee? Yeah, that's a great question. So Lee's asking, how do we distinguish between the spirit that we're born with and the spirit, the Holy Spirit that is, regener- that is brought in regeneration? So yeah, I think that that breathing in a, of God's life, or of life, if you will, is just life. It's the spirit of life. It's um, that breathing capacity, if you will. But conceived by two human beings, what are we conceived in? sin. And so that soul, that being now is corrupted by sin. Not just going to do sinful things, but is sinfully in nature corrupt. And therefore doing sinful things is an unavoidable byproduct. Whereas that's part of the great promises of the new covenant is he's going to actually give his spirit in a very different way. Not just give life, but give his life like the life of Christ, where in him is the life, John said, right? In his life is the light of men, which is why you're saved by union with Christ. You're united to Christ in whom is what? The life. Well, that's an eternal life. The life he gave you at birth is not an eternal life. It's just living. It's breathing. It's a mortal it's a mortal kind of life in this body. So yeah, good question. So when, when God regenerates by the Spirit of God, that's giving his spirit in a very, very different way. Yeah. Created with a physical body. And what that means is the body matters. God formed your body. He formed mine. And There's no two bodies that are exactly alike. Even if you're identical twins, you're not as identical as you might think. You're just more identical as siblings than all other siblings. And yet even every body that he makes is distinctive. And I mean, you just think about if you stick seven billion people that are on the earth right now next to each other and just the vastness of creativity. If you were assigned the task of making a bunch of people, how long would it take before you ran out of ideas? before it started looking pretty monolithic. And yet, you look at the vastness of human beings across the earth and go, what a creative God. And, he, and then you go across all of history, all the billions, of billions, and he still hasn't run out of ideas. Like then, today, there'll be new humans that come into the world that he formed their substance in a very distinctive, unique kind of way that won't look like everybody else. 
And that's part of why when you look at creation, you will worship something always. You'll either worship God or something else because you just can't not be in awe of what exists and what is. And so there is inner person and outer person. Again, 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we don't lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so though our physical bodies have numerous parts, they compose a single body. And though our spiritual selves have, again, parts, if you will, but they compose a single heart, a single inner being, which means the composition of human beings is outer and inner self. And we'll get into some of why that's important later. Because there's certain philosophies that want to break up the inner person into these different aspects of soul, spirit, and somehow these are different. And you need psychologists for the, the soul part and pastors for the spirit part and philosophers for the mind part. And so it, it sort of divides up people in a way that minimizes actually you need the gospel and the word of God for your whole part because you're a unified inner being. But the body matters, but realizing it's not just a body, it's a body with a per- who is a person. And that's why, you know, some of you may value like the flesh of cows more than others, especially when it's mealtime, right? And so you appreciate good beef and you probably don't hesitate, you know, when you go to the, the supermarket and look at beef to purchase it and not think that anything's wrong. But if you had a cow and it started talking to you <laughs> and it started writing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, if it started praying to Yahweh and joining your prayer meeting, and you probably would be slower to kill it, right? I mean, there's something about Oh, it's not just that it's flesh. It's what's inside, like, really matters. And that's why for a human being, I mean, we're meant to see and go, okay, the the way the inner outer person is joined together is very different. Inseparably joined together and yet separated at death. And so the Bible teaches the essential unity of man. That's the words of Winston Smith. The essential unity of people, our souls and bodies are united to compose us. Now, sometimes it may feel as if you're at war with your body, and yet your body is you, and your soul is you, and those are inseparably interdependent until you die. Now, when you die, they will be separated. Your body will go to the ground. Your soul will depart to be with the Lord. But even that's just temporary. Second Corinthians 5, 6, and 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not sight. Yes, we're of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So it's just Paul saying, the day's coming when your body, cursed, is going to die and go into the ground. But your soul isn't going to go in the ground. Your soul's going to depart to go be with the Lord. And yet even then, though, we don't want to just float in heaven as disembodied souls. 
So part of the promise of the gospel is your body will be raised. It will be resurrected. It will be reunited in glorification, 1 Corinthians 15. And not just a different body, your body. And so your body could be burned out at sea and then the ashes spread across the Atlantic. And God will raise all of it. Every molecule. And even, you think about that power. To raise your body up and glorify it. And that's 1 Corinthians 15. That's what Paul's talking about. Well, there's implications for all this that I want to take the remainder of our time on. I think unavoidable implications. One is worship. Because what all this means is that every human being on the planet owes tribute and worship to the Lord by the simple fact that he made them. That he governs the process of procreations through parents being made in his image with life. So you, some of you may remember when the prophet Daniel is going to confront Belshazzar, king of Babylon, in, in Daniel 5. Listen to what he says. He says to Belshazzar, this king, You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, of whose are all your ways you have not honored. Just that right there. The God whose hand holds your breath, whose life, your life is in his hand, and for that reason, you owe him honor. I mean, think of Romans 1, right, where all these people God created, put in the world, who refused to give God thanks. Just that expression of worship. And so God gave them over to do things with their bodies that shouldn't have been done. And so even that, just by the fact of creation, by their existence as an image bearer of God, he says, you owe God thanks and honor. And when you refuse, that's at the very heart of what sinfulness is, is that I don't want to give him thanks. I don't want to honor him. And so if your breath is in God's hands, then you owe him worship. And that's where a lot of evangelistic conversation can start. Like, your breath is in God's hands. You were created and made. Therefore, you owe him worship. And the moment you say that, the moment that's true, they're in trouble. Because apart from Christ, we're all in trouble. Another implication is dignity. Listen to James 3, 7 through 10. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. In other words, one way in which we're separate from the animals is 
We're created to bless with our tongues. We're created with that capacity. But also, those that we're looking at, that we're speaking about and to, are made in the likeness of God. So all the book of James really is about giving, showing people the dignity that God thinks they're due as image bearers of God. And what James is seeing in the church, what God is seeing in the Jerusalem church, is they are not relating to one another with the dignity that is befitting those who are in the image of God, both in their speaking, but also in how they're relating to the people they're speaking to. And so a natural implication of being created in God's image as soul, but then also embodied, is dignity. Whereas naturalism is going to assume and claim that nature's all there is. So when you see people, you're just seeing the product of physiology. You're just seeing the output of evolution. And that only the physical universe exists and that all human experience originates in the physical realm and terminates in the physical realm. And the effects of that worldview on societies and cultures are devastating. And it's all over the world. And I give a few examples there in your notes. One is just what I call the stratification of life which means the arbitrary placement of value on only certain kinds of cultural expressions, only certain kinds of physical appearances, only certain kinds of physical accomplishments. Just look at sports in our country. That's stratification of life. Where you're not watching the basketball game and going, huh, I'm not impressed with their character. And so I'm going to withhold applause. That doesn't happen, right? Like, if they throw that thing down with a serious slam dunk, you don't care about how they treated their wife last week. You don't care about character in that. It's, it's only physical. And it shows how, again, with a naturalistic kind of worldview, we stratify and partition life. Okay, here's the kind of skin color that is most attractive. Here's the kind of social economic status that's more attractive. Here's the kind of physical ability that's most attractive. If you're a kid, if you're elderly, what does the world think of that? Not as much value. Because of the external, because of that piece. Well, that's stratification. That's what I'm talking about. That's where naturalism drives everybody. Or you're no more valuable than an animal. And that might be an elevation of animals, but it's mostly a devaluing of human beings. The medicalization of life is a byproduct where anxiety, depression, grief, sorrow, gladness are just reduced to physiological, biological phenomenon. That you feel this way, you think this way because of your body. Well, that's actually just the medicalization of life where now even grief is seen as dysfunction. Rather than a byproduct of being made in the image of God in a good aspect of personhood. But also, thirdly, the sexualization of life, where your identity, your purpose, your value are byproducts of your sexual preferences, of your experiences, of your achievements sexually. Have we gotten there as a culture? Where you are your sexuality. Your sexual preferences, orientation, achievements is fundamentally who you are. Well, that can only survive in a naturalistic worldview. 
That can only survive where God isn't central, where Christ isn't supreme. Humility is another byproduct. Isaiah 40, 6 to 8, a voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And do you see, the, based on what we've talked about, the irony of that statement? How does flesh live? By breath of God. Well, how does it die? Breath blowing on it. God removing it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this is what's fascinating about naturalism is that it's both dehumanizing and pride-inducing all at the same time. That if you're just the highest evolved species on earth, well, then you've just lowered dignity, but you've also just induced pride because there's not an infinite holy, righteous being to whom we must bow and be humbled before. Because you read that and go, yeah, our lives are a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow, like grass, just blown on and withered away. So it should be humbling when we think about it. I think courage is another implication that we don't need to fear people because they are creations of God and derive personhood from God. So Isaiah 2.22, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? So don't fear man. God gives him breath and he takes it away. Psalm 146.3, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Again, humbling but also courage-inducing. He says, yeah, don't fear people. All they can do is kill you. Jesus is going to say it a similar way, right? That's all they can do is kill your body, but they can't touch your soul. Fear the one who has the power, the authority, that after he's killed the body, can throw the body and the soul into hell. And so there's a courage, an encouraging part to this. And then lastly, just hope. We talked about briefly just 1 Corinthians 15, that if we're redeemed in Christ, united to his death and resurrection, then we're going to live forever with him. This life is not all there is. And so you actually don't live your best life now. You hopefully live your most faithful life now. Your most humble, trusting in the Lord life now. Your most repentant, looking to Christ for salvation life now knowing that after your body dies and goes into the ground, you're going to depart to be with the Lord, and on the last day, he's going to raise it and unite you to it, glorified, and you will dwell with him forever. Like, that's, that's where the hope is, as those created with a heart, created with a body, inseparably interdependent until death, and yet redeemed and given life by God through Jesus Christ. Any final questions, comments, reflections? Yes, Davy. These are being recorded. Yes, yeah, yes, you're right. So here's what I'd love for you to do: take 
five minutes, find three or four people around you. And here's the question I want you to discuss for five minutes. Just how are you going to walk into that main service today different than how you usually do in light of the passages and the things we've talked about? How is this going to affect your worship? You're relating to other human beings. How's it going to affect your hope? How's it going to affect the way you listen to the sermon? Make sense? So take five minutes kind of on your way out the door. This will be where we close to just talk about that question with a group of others, and then we'll go. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but have given us your word, have given us salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that the words of, that you have spoken would humble us, but would also encourage us and give us hope and grow our love for you and others and would absolutely invigorate our worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.